You know, be, being a shaliach in a very small Jewish community has its, its advantages in a way that it's a relatively intimate affair. You come into a small community in a relatively distant place. You know, there are not many Jews there. It's a tight-knit community, and you get to see people up close and personal. You meet the families, you, meet, you teach the kids, you know the parents, you see them uh, not just uh, at the synagogue once in a while or only on the high holidays. You get to see many of the homes of people and develop friendships and see the community both in celebration and in crisis. And again, since I, I went there as an Israeli, very much with an Israeli mindset, uh, this was an, an eye-opening experience. I'll, I'll give you one example. From the hills of Jerusalem, you're listening to Is That Really? Stories and conversations about what it means to be Israeli, really. It's now early December, and the warm winds of summer are now a distant memory, as it's been pretty cold and rainy here for the past few weeks. Not to worry, because I've got some warm hot cocoa and ragalach with me as I record this, so uh, I'm keeping warm. Also, it's interesting to side note that hot chocolate in Israel doesn't come in a kind of funky powdery substance like it does in the U.S. It's served as warm milk with a dark chocolate square which you're supposed to mix in. Go figure. Anyways, I'm Grant, and today in the podcast, Shmuel Rosner, an Israeli journalist and author, speaking with me about the differences between diaspora and Israeli Judaism. He mentioned several times in our conversation about a book he recently co-authored with Professor Kamal Fuchs, a statistician at the Tel Aviv University, called Hashtag Israeli Judaism, and the link to where you can find this will be posted in, in the show notes. It was fascinating to talk to Shmuel and hear a bit about his journey and his research, and I hope our listeners enjoy. Thanks so much as always. And here you go. My name is Shmuel Rosner. I'm a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute. I'm the nonfiction editor for an Israeli publishing house, Kinerds Morad Vir. And I'm a writer for uh, various newspapers. I'm the political editor of the Los Angeles Jewish Journal. I write columns for uh, Israel's Ma'ariv and for the International New York Times and for some other publications. Um, and so uh, what got you interested in, in journalism when you were... Um, I know in 87 you started at the Israeli Army Radio. Right. Um, what, how did that happen? I, um, as a teenager, I was listening to the radio a lot and thought this could be fun. And I knew it was a very long shot, but I tried it anyhow. And since I was accepted to serve uh, in the in Galei Tzahal, in the Israeli army radio station, which is a very popular um, radio station in Israel, uh, I thought this was something uh, not to be missed. Um. Do you remember the first story you worked on? No, this was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I can't. I can't say that I remember. Uh, I remember my my first days as a very young soldier. Uh, you know, walking walking the halls in the radio station and being somewhat awed by the 
magnificence of it all. Um, it's a crummy building, or it used to be a crummy building. They, they moved someplace else uh, just a few years ago. So they, there was nothing glamorous about it except mm -hmm. uh, for a young soldier to, to be part of such organization. Um, it was a very special experience, and it resembles in some ways the experiences many young Israelis have when they get into the IDF. You, you suddenly become an adult, you join the adult world um, on a whim. You know, you're one second you're a um, worries-free 18-year-old teenager uh, partying and studying for your exams, and the next day uh, they give you a rifle, or they put you on a uh, tank, or they give you a microphone and tell you to begin, you know, mm. working in a radio. So this experience of instantly becoming part of the adult world um, was something that I remember quite vividly. That's really interesting that uh, you kind of listed the microphone in the long list of uh, different, um, I guess, tools that, you know, soldiers in the IDF used to defend Israel. Um, do you... Um, how do you view, metaphorically speaking, um, the microphone and the way that you've used it? Um, no, I, I don't mean the microphone uh, as, a, as a weapon or as a tool of war. I, I mean the microphone in the sense that they give you something, they let you do something that only adults mm -hmm. get to do. So, so one day, again, one day you are a high school student, and the next day that they tell you to call... Um, Foreign Minister Shimon Peres at home at 6.30 in the morning and ask him whether he'd be willing to give an interview to the morning show of the radio station. And there is a, it, it, it's like, um, it's a huge leap for, for a young person to uh, move from being a, a high schooler to picking up the phone and calling the foreign minister or the prime minister's office and and talk to these people as if you were peers in some way. Yeah. You know, you have a question for him. Can he please answer? Would he be willing to do this or that? Um, it's a it's it's something that not not in many places you get chances to do such things as a very young person. But again, this is not just about the radio. The same goes for uh, Israeli soldiers who do intelligence work. Um, in Amman, in Israel's uh, uh, intelligence forces. Uh, and the same goes for um, those who go to combat units. I have two sons in, in military service now. Mm. One is uh, doing more, uh, more of an office work, and the other one is in a combat unit. But for both of them, the experience of instantly having to grow up, um, you know, now I'm looking at it as a parent, yeah. It, it was very clear and, and there was something, it was a clarifying moment for me to see this. Uh, also in the sense that Israel should be thankful to the IDF for taking our youngsters and really educating them through a very fast process of just forcing them to grow up. Yeah. Um. So I think, I think that's a great um, place to kind of bring me to my first um, question uh, in terms of growing up. So um, 
a lot of your um, career um, in journalism, uh, it seems, is um, focused on uh, diaspora Jewry, um, and you spent a lot of time in the U.S., um, if I remember correctly. Um, when did you um, first get interested in um, going to the U.S. and kind of uh, doing your, you know, uh, being a journalist there? Well, my career is somewhat misleading to the uh, outside observer. Most of my years in journalism, or at least half of them, were not spent on U.S.-related matters or uh, Jewish affairs. I was mostly an editor, uh, first in lo a local newspaper, then in a national newspaper. I was a features editor. I was a news editor. I was the head of the news division for uh, five years at Haaretz Daily. And uh, those years were years in which I dealt with you know, running, running a news operation for a newspaper. Um, my interest in the, in the US uh, picked at a fairly young age when I was spending one year in North America, not in the United States, but in Canada, in a small Jewish community as a young shaliach, as a young um, emissary to the community. I'm not sure that I was good enough a shaliach to change the community, but the con community certainly changed me mm. in the sense that um, it opened my eyes to the possibility of uh, looking at interesting Jewish lives outside of Israel. So that was the beginning of it. How, how old were you when you were there? Oh, 24, 25. Um, mm. My wife and I, we were a young couple. We didn't yet have kids. And we went there for... Uh, for about a year, and came back and, and went back to our journalistic work, to our journalistic career. But since then, I started developing my interest, reading a lot, a lot of uh, history, a lot of uh, you know articles, magazines, books, uh, talking to people, taking advantage of my status as a news editor to uh, set up meetings with people whom I thought might be interesting for me. And then at some point, I realized that this is, this is something that I want to do on a more you know, full-time basis and started uh, working towards uh, moving to the US to be, a, to be a correspondent there, which I did in uh, 05, 2005. Um, and these were fascinating years for me. I learned a lot. I met a lot of people. So, so my years, my years in the United States as a correspondent uh, gave me an opportunity to do two things. First one is to really do a full time, invest my mm -hmm. all of my time in learning, investigating, exploring um, the many things that are that I find interesting in North America, and they also gave me the opportunity for the first time to communicate. Uh, with North American Jews, uh, not just to write about them for Israeli audience, mm -hmm. but also to write in English on the English website of Haaretz, which was uh, relatively new at that time. So I started not just writing about American Jews for Israelis, but also writing about American Jews for American Jews, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, also a very interesting experience and again 
there, there is a difference between being a, a foreign correspondent in the sense that you only go to a place to write for your home base crowd mm-hmm. and going to a place and writing for the people on whom you write so so this was this is something that I was able to do only thanks to technological developments of that era uh, but it it certainly broadened my horizons at the time um, in 2011 you published a book uh, it was called uh, Stettel bagel baseball on the dreadful and wonderful state of American Jews right um, I'm curious what what struck you from those um, even from those early interactions through um, the rest of your time uh, in North America about um, the you know the type of Jewishness that you were observing what was the wonderful what was the dreadful um, and everything in between well the, f- the first thing that struck me is the fact that it, it is so different I grew up in Israel I'm an Israeli as uh, you know people can uh, detect from my accent uh, my first time in North America was when I was uh, 23 or 24 years old it's not I, I was not I was not Americanized in any way mm-hmm. um, when I started uh, my, this journey. So seeing how different it is was something quite tantalizing. Uh, I'm now having the opportunity to talk to Israeli shlichim who go abroad every year. I'm, I'm invited to give, to give talks or seminars to Israeli shlichim. And the most important thing I tell them is that the shlichut is much more about changing them than it is about changing the American Jewish community. Uh, a, a young Israeli shaliach cannot really make a huge change in the community. He can, you know, he can contribute, but such such terms spent spent abroad do change the person. Uh, do give him a sense of you know there's a world out there. It calls itself by the same name. We are Jewish, they are Jewish, but it's completely different in so many ways. So now the dreadful and wonderful, these terms refer to the to the fact that America is um, wonderful to the Jews who live there and it gives them the opportunity to thrive. But also, it's dreadful in the sense that such temptation is a cause for confusion and at some point, possibly uh, assimilation into the greater society. So holding, your, holding yourself together or keeping, keeping the tribe as a tribe uh, under such hospitable circumstances is a, is a challenge. Uh, and it's a challenge that, that the Jews were not well prepared to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not what our history did not really prepare us to deal with such uh, wonderful circumstances. What, what do you mean by that? What, what, what about our history? I, I, I mean that our history is mostly a history of uh, being apart from the outside society, setting ourselves apart and being casted apart by our rivals or enemies or or just neighbors. So the Jews are really good at maintaining their culture, uh, moving it to the, passing it on to the next generation under circumstances in which they are separate. 
in America, they are not so separate as they used to be. And again, this is a new challenge that demands new cultural responses. And this is, again, it's a great opportunity and it's a huge challenge. And that's why it's both wonderful and dreadful. Mm. Um, what do you think is the greatest challenge for the, uh, the American Jewish community? Do you think it's assimilation, um, intermarriage? Um? Well, assimilation and intermarriage are both a result of something. They're not the reason. They're the result. Uh, it's the result of living in an open society with uh, unclear boundaries and unclear rules and unclear motivations to remain within the Jewish fold. Um, and, and that is the challenge. Uh, it's a challenge that began with modernity. Uh, but in Israel, we don't have it because we live in a Jewish-majority society. So in Israel, if you're born Jewish, there's no, there's no reason not to keep it just the way it is. There's, there's nothing else out there. Uh, in America, if you're born Jewish, you still have to make this choice every day of your life. Do I want to keep this? Do I want to do something to manifest my Jewishness? Do I want to be active in a Jewish community? Do I need to go to a synagogue? Do I want to raise my kids um, in, in a certain way? Does it impact my choice of a spouse? Does it impact my choice of uh, the place in which I live? So there are many things that, that you have to consider as you um, explore your identity. And if Jewishness, if being Jewish is not hugely important, or if it's important but the rules are unclear, then there are many distractions that can just, it's not that you want to do something else, or it's not that you don't care, but you know, life takes over. And, and things happen to people. And that's why I think we see a community in the United States that is challenged. Yeah. Um, so with, um, with that uh, community of um, Jews in the US that you view as um, challenged in, in certain ways, um, how does that contrast um, with uh, what Judaism has become in Israel. Um, and I'll just read you um, a brief quote. I, I think it was in your book, actually, um, about kind of the foundations of what Judaism was um, in the Zionist movement, um, which reads, uh, since in the modern world nations exist in civil states, we will build for the Jews a civil state. Since in the modern world religion no longer serves as a strong glue for Jews, we will gather them to a place where their Judaism no longer depends on strict observance. Uh, observance to Jewish law, and since in the modern world um, it makes it easy for Jews to assimilate and disappear, we will offer a social framework in which there is not much opportunity for assimilation. Yes, it is from my my book. I, I identify the the quote, uh, so let me plug in my book. Yeah, uh, I recently wrote a book with a colleague of mine, um, Professor Camille Fuchs of Tel Aviv University. He's a mathematics professor and a well-known, the most well-known pollster uh, in Israel. And together we conducted a vast study 
in Israel of uh, Israeli Jewish society, and we published a book. It's called Israeli Judaism, Portrait of a Cultural Revolution. And I only plug it in because it will come out in English uh, at the end of this summer or maybe in the early fall. And I hope that some, some of our listeners will bother um, to read the book. So, so what this book tells you, essentially, is that after 70 years of statehood in Israel, you can see the signs of a Jewish culture that is typical of this place and this time. Never before we had, as Jews, uh, um, a civil secular state. Now we do. And the culture that evolves here uh, stems from, from these circumstances. So again, um, we are a Jewish majority society. So the challenge of assimilation basically does not exist here. It doesn't. Jews in Israel essentially marry other Jews. So we mostly have here Jewish families with both parents being Jewish and all kids being Jewish. Um, one of the things that we found in our study is also that the question of Jewish continuity, this slogan that is, mm -hmm. you know, people speak about so much in, in other communities, not just in the United States, but also in Australia or France or Canada or other places, the issue of Jewish, Jewish continuity is not at all a concern for Israeli Jews. They don't even understand what's, what else is there. If, again, if you're, if you're Jewish and you live in Israel, this is the obvious choice. There are no questions about it. Only for Israelis who leave Israel and move to uh, reside elsewhere, mm -hmm. this question becomes important. But for Israelis who remain in Israel, and the vast majority of us uh, Israeli-born Israelis stay in Israel, there's no such question. Jewish continuity? Of course it will continue. We asked Israelis, we gave them uh, in our study a scale from 0 to 10. What is your level of confidence that your children will be Jewish? And then what is the level of, your, of confidence that your grandchildren will be Jewish? And we were expecting to get, you know, relatively high score. We thought, you know, an average of eight maybe would be reasonable. We got a ma clear majority, more than 60%, who, who, who said a 10, gave it a 10. There are very few Israelis who do not think that their children and grandchildren will be Jewish. Because again, what are the other options? If you're an Israeli, there are no other good options to explore. This is the best option. So the challenges here are very different and the, the state of mind is very different. Uh, I'll give you one last example. In the United States, when, when you ask Jews in the United States, what is Judaism? In many cases, the answer you'll get is a religion. When the uh, Pew... Um, Research survey. Yeah, what was done, it was done by, by the department in, in the Pew Institute, the department that deals with religiosity or religions. In Israel, Judaism is not a religion. Israel is a nation state of the Jewish people. It was established 
not as a, the state of the religion of Judaism. It was established as the nation state of the Jewish people. Most is, for most Israelis, Judaism is first and foremost a tribal affiliation or a national affiliation. We belong to a people. We are part of a people. Our story, if you think you know, about our mythology, about our narrative, what is the story of the Jews? It's a story of a family. There was Jacob, who then changed his name to Israel, and he had 12 sons, and they moved to Egypt, and they became a people, and then was the Exodus, and they came into the land. It's a story of a family. We are a family. Now, it's true. This, at some point, the family received the Torah from Sinai, and the family also had a religion as one of its, you know, one of the manifestations of its uh, shared culture. But religion is just one component of this, in, in the JPPI where I work, we call it the Jewish civilization. Mm -hmm. it's, it's much more than just a religion. And I think for Israelis, the um, emphasis on nationhood is much more pronounced than it is for Jews who live elsewhere. They understand uh, their belonging to, uh, to Judaism much more in a national way than in a religious way. And that's why, you know, in our study, we, we give such questions, uh, you know, what does it mean to be a good Jew? And you get weird answers such as, you know, serving in the IDF. For Israeli Jews, to be a good Jew, you need to serve in the IDF. Now, serving in the IDF is a civil duty. There's nothing essentially Jewish about it. Mm. There are people serving in militaries in all countries around the world. Uh, but in Israel, we impose or, or mix um, civil duties with Jewish values. We there is an amalgamation of Jewishness and Israeliness into one culture, and this is what Israelis are doing. And in this, they are indeed very different from uh, from Jews elsewhere. What about, um, in addition to civic duty, um, the role that tradition plays in um, contemporary Israeli Judaism? Are um, does, is tradition the way that most uh, Israeli Jews um, practice their Judaism? Uh, or would you say, like, where's the balance between um, practicing tradition and civic duty in terms of how people express their Judaism? So again, to, to get the whole picture, you, you need to read the book. But, but what Jews do here is a lot of tradition and we deliberately say tradition and not religion. Because, of course, there are religious people in Israel, you know, about 30% of the population. These are religious people, and they do all kinds of things for religious reasons. But then you get all the other Jews. I'll, I'll give you one example. About 97 or 98% of Jews in Israel do a Seder every year. It's a it's basically everyone. Now, more than half of them are not religious. 
So what is the Seder for them? It's a tradition. It's a Jewish tradition. And you know, some will do it with more, some will stick with the uh, tradition um, and and do all this, the practices and ceremonies as associated with the Seder every year. And some of them will just gather as a family for a large meal and maybe will sing uh, three th- songs and that's it. But the tradition in Israel, and it's again, it's a national tradition. If you if it's Seder night in Israel and you walk in the street, the streets are empty mm-hmm. and you can hear the noises from every house of families gather to celebrate. This is what Jews in Israel do. So again, I, I live in Tel Aviv. It's a fairly secular city, but you will have no way of getting confused when you walk out of the house on, on Saturday night or on Yom Kippur. Many Tel Avivians will not bother to fast on Yom Kippur or will not go to the synagogue on Yom Kippur or will not do many other things associated with, with the day. But again, if you walk in Tel, Tel Aviv street on Yom Kippur, you, you will know it's Yom Kippur. There are no cars. There are many kids on bicycles. The streets are empty. The, there is uh, some silence in the air. It's the, the whole atmosphere is infused with this sense of tradition. Again, not in a religious way, in a traditional Israeli-Jewish way. Hmm. Um, what, as um, right now there's somewhat of a tension between uh, the more secular um, cohorts of the Israeli population and the more religious Haredi um, population. Um, what do you see as the future of um, how Judaism will evolve in, in Israel? This tension is not is not a temporary thing. This is go, this is a constant feature of Israeli life, and it ought to continue. In every society, there are tensions between people who have different beliefs and different ideologies and different ways of lives and different political affiliations, and there is a constant battle between these camps, and the same goes for Israeli ultra-seculars and ultra-religious Jews. You know, they, they have a fight. We have a political system that can resolve these issues, not always to my liking or yours, but that's, that's the system. People go, they vote, there is a parliament, there are mechanisms with which to um, deal with these problems. I, I don't see them as something to be uh, highly troubled by. So we have tensions. Well, what, what, what else is there? Do they not have tensions in the United States between people with different um, viewpoints? Do they not have tensions in France and in, uh, um, I don't know, Russia? I'm sure. I'm sure they do. So it's a, it's a diverse society with many people. You know, Israel, when I grew up in Israel, it, it used to be a country of uh, three million people. 
We are now more than 9 million. This country is growing fast. It's a large society with many different segments and factions and groups. And it's natural that we will see tensions between these groups. Um, and I guess uh, one final thing, and to start wrapping up, because I also want to be conscious of your time. Um, that's really interesting. Um, this is a, a narrative podcast, and um, I think it would be incomplete Sorry. if um, I didn't ask you um, for a story. Um, so... Um, in your life um, as an Israeli, as a journalist, and um, as a father, um, are there any moments um, or stories, and you can go into as much detail as you want, that you feel um, were really defining for you in the way that you view the world? Um, does anything come to mind? Well, I, I already told you about my year abroad, uh, spending a year as a young uh, person in, uh, in Canada. I'll give them full credit. It was Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Um, so this community opened my eyes to many things that I didn't know or didn't understand what, uh, what about it? beforehand. You know, be, being a shaliach in a very small Jewish community has its, its advantages in a way that it's a relatively intimate affair. You come into a small community in a relatively distant place. You know, there are not many Jews there. It's a tight-knit community, and you get to see people up close and personal. You meet the families. You, meet, you teach the kids. You know the parents. You see them uh, not just uh, at the synagogue once in a while or only on the high holidays, you get to see many of the homes of people and develop friendships and see the community both in celebration and in crisis. And again, since I, I went there as an Israeli, very much with an Israeli mindset, uh, this was an, an eye-opening experience. I'll, I'll give you one example. I come from an Orthodox family. And my whole life up until then, I only spent time in synagogues where the seating was separate, seating of uh, male and female was separate, and only a male could read from the Torah. And at some point, that year, when I spent a year in Kitchener, at some point, a small group of, of women decided that they wanted to read well, not even from the Torah, to read the Torah. And there was a huge debate within the community and the synagogue. And ultimately, they got a separate room to have their own service once in a while with women reading from the Torah. And I was instrumental in some way in this process because they needed someone to teach them how to read or to help them with the reading and the conducting of the of the services and, and the Orthodox rabbi of the community would not do it. So I, you know, as a shaliach, I was willing to do whatever is necessary for the community. So then I attended the uh, first Shabbat service of, of that group. My wife and I, we were there together. And it was a highly emotional experience. We, 
we were somewhat puzzled, but also very moved by looking at mostly older women. I'm now as old as they were back then, but they were older women, and they were holding the Torah and passing it from one person to the other, and they were all crying. These were, I don't know, they were in their 40s or 50s, and some of them maybe in their 60s, and this was the first time for them to hold a Torah scroll and to be able to hug it and to kiss it and then to read from it. And clearly this was something that meant a lot for them and was, again, the, it's, it's, a, it's a picture that I still have in my memory. You know, there were no photos taken, so I have no... No physical evidence, no nothing to, to look at, as I remember uh, that Shabbat. But it was fantastic. It was fantastic, and in many ways it changed my whole outlook on the participation of women in services at the synagogue. So again, you were looking for one story. It's a story for many years ago, uh, I've been since then to uh, hundreds of different types of synagogues and temples with all kinds of services and approaches. Uh, I'm, I'm now a well-traveled Jew. But back then, this was new uh, to me, and it was, it was a life-changing experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, well, um, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Is That Really? I don't know about you, Andrew, but I think that was our best episode yet. Grant, I couldn't agree more. I want to give a special thanks to our sponsors, the Duke Center for Jewish Studies and the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University for helping make our podcast Is That Really Possible? And to you for listening and hanging out with us. If you've been enjoying the podcast or just want to make our mothers happy, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts Check out our website, www.isthatreally.com, and tell your friends. We hope that you'll join us for the next episode. Thanks for listening.